Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Mihal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehellstoneshow.com. Today I'm talking with the founder of Zogjan Beira Retreat Centre in Castletown Beira in Cork, Ireland, Peter Cornish. Hello, Peter. Hello, Michal. Tell me, Peter, for somebody with a very little sight, you had a fantastic vision. Where did that come from? I think I'd always had um, a dream about establishing a centre. When I was young, it was to establish a centre for artists. And then as I um, got older, I became interested in spiritual things, and so... I had the vision to start um, a Buddhist center, and that's where it, where it um, that's where it came from. I think maybe the fact that I had such bad eyes helped me to see the world in a slightly different way. I don't know. What's it like not to see the face of another? <laughs> well, you get used to it. It's been that way all my life, and there's other ways of um, seeing people. You know, you can see by their body language and just their sort of whole presence. You can read people quite well that way. In fact, sometimes I think we get a bit um, a bit distracted by detail looking at people we can judge people too easily and how are you judging me I'm judging you as somebody who's scaring me to death with this microphone (laughs) (laughs) I know Peter you had a secret despair of where your future could be or should be when you were younger what was this when I left school uh, and I could see very little so um, so many options and jobs weren't available to me I couldn't drive a car for example and uh, so uh, it was difficult to imagine what I was going to do and Peter you had a spiritual experience when you were younger can you tell me about this yes um, it was really it was more of a sort of out of body experience actually when I was uh, a young man working in a hotel in Exmouth in Devon and I went up to Exeter for the day and I was just walking around the streets and then suddenly I seemed to be um, many feet above myself looking down on myself and all the world and people were coming and going and I wasn't part of the scene anymore I was completely outside my body and and uh, the and what was going on in the world and uh, it was it was it's really difficult to explain I think to explain any religious experience I call it a religious experience but uh, it was certainly uh, it certainly affected my life. It made me realise that there was a lot more to this than meets the eye. In what way do you think you changed since that experience? I don't know that I changed completely so much. It was more a matter of uh, just encouraging me in the way that I was already going, I think. You say the necessary resource will always show up. Can you tell me how this applied, say, in your own case, in creating Zagashan Vera? Well, it certainly was the case that uh, there were many occasions when building all these buildings in this huge place, we'd run out of money. And uh, I kept going um, uh, when there was no money, even when we were in debt. And somehow the money always seemed to turn up. That's what you're referring to, I think. So 
I think perhaps it's perhaps it may be that just if you have a sort of crazy confidence enough uh, and and a real vision, I've heard other people say this that uh, things just unfold like that, and and the resources all turn always turn up when you need them. I think if you're thinking in the right direction and doing something more for others than for yourself, that's how it's that sort of unlocks that, un that unlocks the key. Would you say it's like having a very strong faith in your vision, Peter? Yeah, I guess so. You, uh, um, I think, I think once you have a vision, you have faith in it. You know. Tell me, Peter, about I Ching. Oh, the I Ching is um, an ancient Chinese book. Uh, it's also known as the Book of Changes, and uh, it's you can. It tells you. It advises you. Uh, you well, what you do is you sow either coins or yarrow stalks. Uh, and depending on how they fall, it will tell you your present situation and the situation that's going to develop into the future. So it's in a way, it's like a fortune telling. It tells your fortune, but um, it's amazingly, it's amazingly um, trustworthy. It comes up with, a time and again, it's come up with amazing results. Could you give me an example of that? Yeah, the best example was one that was, I'd. I've had some uh, interesting results from the Book of Changes. I believed some people um, do it every day, but I believed that um, that's rather um, trashing it. Uh, it's, it's rather to do it for me, it was so special. I would only do it on rare occasions when I really needed an answer, when I was stuck and couldn't make my own mind up, which was rarely. Um, I, had to, I uh, had to come to a decision when I had two alternatives, and the best example was when I was living in Scotland at the first Tibetan Buddhist centre in the West under Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche um, I had, I'd bought a cottage up there on, and there was no water supply to the cottage there had been an old water supply and the forestry had ploughed all the hill behind the cottage uh, and ploughed up the old, the old well, spring well that was on that mountain and there was no sign of it there were just furrows full of trees and I searched the mountain for the well and couldn't find it. So then there was a stream running down by the side of the house that actually dried up in the summer. But because I couldn't find the well, I thought I'd better use the stream. So I asked the I Ching, should I, use, should I still continue to look for the well or should I use the stream? And uh, I was hoping it would say the stream because that was going to be a damn sight easier than looking for this well all across this one and a half square miles of mountain that had been ploughed up and um, so I threw the I Ching and the first hexagram which is uh, first hexagram came up with uh, and each hexagram has a, has a title and the title of the first hexagram was The Well and I didn't even know there was a hexagram called The Well uh, there's 64 hexagrams and I hadn't I hadn't ever checked them all and anyway it came up with the answer so specifically as that and then when you saw it the second time and the second one that came up was would you believe water so I got the well changing to water um, this completely blew my mind so then I had to go and look for the well again on the mountain and uh, uh, we did find the well eventually in fact to find the well uh, I got a local builder to come up with copper rods to do another sort of divination which was uh, water divining and he went backwards and forwards over the mountain with his rods stuck his heel in the ground in the middle of nowhere and said dig there to his mate the guy dug down into the ground with his shovel and got about got about nearly a metre down and we found nothing at all 
and we were going to give up and then the builder said go on have another go so he dug down a bit further and clunk he hit a house brick and he dug it out and then a couple of frogs hopped out and we found the, the, the and the well was there exactly where he said it was so there was a divination divinations with the I Ching and divinations with copper rods afterwards and for me that convinced me that uh, not only that divinations work but there's a whole level of stuff going on here that we haven't got a clue about I know you met Ram Daz as well didn't you when you were in Scotland yeah. what was he like? he was he'd just come back from India actually um, and he'd he'd been in America with Timothy Leary and and uh, moved over and uh, gone to India and found his guru there yeah he was a cool guy he, t- he taught us one day in my house in Scotland me and about 15 other young people sitting on tables and chairs and on the on the windowsill and on tops of cupboards and and uh, and he sat on the bed in his white robes with his beads telling us all about his guru in India and uh, and I thought I thought actually this is pretty much what I wanted to start and it was a sort of prelude to what was going to happen later in Ireland here and how was he as an individual was he mind-blowing or, or what was he like he was um, he was okay he was he was pretty cool he was he was he was <laughs> you're trying to get me to say something here I don't want to say you see he, he was very much playing the guru quite honestly yeah. and of course he was Hindu and we were into Buddhism so that was which was fine but it was just different he said a lot of great things and we really enjoyed what he was saying but um we were a little bit a bit nervous of his sitting there smiling and fingering his beads looking all holy I think we were uh, we were a bit critical of him at the time but of course he did he did great things and got a huge following and wrote amazing books so I've got nothing but good things to say about him really I know you helped yourself recover from a bad knee by doing prostrations which included visualizations and also throwing yourself onto the ground. Can you tell me a little bit about this, Peter? Yes. Well, I had um, I developed through running around the land here. Before we started the the Buddhist center, we used to have cattle and sheep on the land, and of course the land here is all rocks and holes and humps and hollows, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it wasn't the best sort of territory for a blind man to be wandering around in. And so I, I, I think I damaged my knee through persistently falling down holes. And, um, and so I had what actually was called a bucket handle fracture, I think it is, uh, in my knee where the ligament slips out of the kneecap. I think it was also known uh, rather discouragingly as housemaid's knee. <laughs> but anyway, this happens to, to people. And what happens is the cartilage flips out of your ball and socket joint in the knee. And it hurts like hell it's so painful just for a second a second maybe just briefly and then it slips back in again and when it's happening it's so painful but it's gone so quickly but each time it happens it damages the knee a bit more and it gets and it gets more painful and it used to happen about once a year and then it started happening once every six months and then two or three times uh, every year and then by the end it was happening every week or even every few days in fact and so I went to see a specialist in Cork and he said we're going to operate and I said oh no you're not and uh, and uh, I went back home and I'd been doing prostrations which is a yogic exercise where you throw yourself on the ground full length people have seen Buddhists doing this 
and it's a fantastic exercise you throw yourself down full length and stand up again and do it over again and the idea is to do a hundred thousand of them and uh, so I'd had to give these up because of my bad knee and then I found that if I I was on crutches by the way by this time it had got so bad um, and still still determined not to go under the knife and um, so I uh, so I decided that I would try and because the knee really used to flip out when I moved it on an angle and I thought if I went straight up and down in prostrations maybe I could get away with it so I laid down the crutches by the side of me and started to do these prostrations and I found I could do them without it going out and so I did I did like 10 the first day 20 the next day 50 the next day and I got up to two or three hundred a day um, I did more when it got better but then I was doing two or three hundred a day and after about three or four months I can't remember the time but maybe after three or four months I threw away my crutches and the knee wasn't going out at all and uh, by the time I'd done about 10,000 of these prostrations or actually maybe far less than that um, the knee never came, never got wet, never came out again, and for the rest of my life, it's been absolutely fine ever since. And the surgeons had told me that it would it would only get worse, and there was no cure. So the prostrations cured it, and I think it was certainly the physical exercise of moving my knee in that way, and maybe a little bit to do with the spiritual aspect of it as well. I'm not sure. What was your experience with just a realized master like Chogi Yam Trumpe? Yeah, Chogi Yam Trumpe. He was. Um, he was an amazing master. I actually got to know him. He wasn't so much older than me. He was a refugee come from Tibet. And he was only, I think, three or four years older than me. So I got to know him as a friend. Um, he was uh, he was quite uh, an unconventional master. Uh, he came from a long lineage of realized masters in Tibet. And um, I never became shall we say a devotee of his I was it was much more of a friendship but just being with him was such an inspiration of the way he dealt with situations in life he was uh, he was an extra- extraordinary master and how did he deal with situations in life mostly he just treated everything with a fantastic sense of humor so that you could never you could say anything to him and people did because they didn't always like the way he he carried on and uh, he just treated everything with a great sense of humour at the same time somehow never hurting anybody or never upsetting anybody he's had a, a very interesting way of actually helping people to find themselves or to see their own truth yes that's right he had a he had a way of dealing with his students um, he was a crazy wisdom master and uh, he had a, he had a way of dealing with his students in tibet they would um, in tibet the masters would put their students through all kinds of trials to test them to see if they really wanted to receive the higher teachings and to see if see to check their commitment really and uh, I never saw him do it I mean some of the masters in Tibet tested their students almost to the point of to almost to death in fact told them to jump over cliffs and all kinds of things and made them lie down in a in a in a ditch full of leeches while they walked over them and left them there and the, all these sorts of things. Now, Trungpa never did anything as extreme as that. But uh, the, the most extreme thing I think I saw him do really was in in Scotland. So there was a, a big house he was living in in Scotland that had one of those old boxes on the wall in the kitchen that was for the servants. Um, and it had a series of rings 
an, a glass-fronted box with a series of rings with the numbers of the rooms, the room numbers upstairs painted in each one, and a bell. And the bell would ring in the kitchen when somebody had to go up to one of the rooms upstairs and the room number would light up. And he was in one of the rooms and he would, send his, he would ring for his student and his student... Of course, this, this box thing was a wonderful plaything for a, for a Tibetan. Uh, it was a, a fantastic mischief machine to wind up his students to see if they were going to get angry or not. So he'd lie in bed in his room and press the, the bell and a student would run up and he'd order some tea and he'd wait until he estimated they'd just got down to the bottom of the long staircase or even along to the kitchen. Then he'd ring the bell again and they'd run up again and he had them running up and downstairs and they, while they got angrier and angrier and he tested their commitment that way. That was, I think he had great fun doing that and he sorted out he sorted out maybe the sheep from the goats. <laughs> Brilliant. Tell me, Peter, how was Zogjan Vera set up? When we first came, there was uh, just a couple of ruins here, ruined houses, and uh, no, not even a proper a road in. We had to leave the car uh, half a mile away at the main road, and we had to get a horse and cart to get into the house. And we gradually did the old farmhouse up ourselves, uh, and then we, bit by bit, we built more houses, uh, and then we built a centre house, and over the years we established the centre. In regards to the bullhouse, was it really a bullhouse? Oh, that was when we were first um, first farming here. And yes, it was a bullhouse, actually. Nobody believes me. But um, I built uh, all every every field and every uh, terrace and every path this place has the most fantastic views over the Atlantic. So I had to build a house for the bull because I had some Charolais cows here and I needed a, bu a, a bull. And so I needed to build a house for the bull and I built it with a bull yard outside and and uh, and upstairs ups, uh, upstairs was going to be a hayloft and an office and uh, and because it had such amazing views I decided to put in big windows and I looked at I looked at the windows and thought my god this is too good for a bull house but uh, but we actually had a bull living downstairs and it was genuinely a bull house but I thought one day, one day I designed it in such a way as one day it could also be used as a retreat house when we didn't have a bull anymore and so we were supposed to get a grant from uh, the European community for, for you got a grant for a bull house and the inspector came along to check the bull house to, to see if we had qualified for the grants and he said it was the first bull house he'd ever seen with teak doors and double glazed windows <laughs> So we didn't get the grants, but we got a great retreat house. And we also we did also actually get a bull. And it really was, I have to say this in my own defense, we, we did actually have a bull for about two years in this bull house before it became a retreat house. Great. I know you said to get anything done, Peter, you had to be crazy, protected by blinkers, or propelled by some force you couldn't explain. Which one do you think helped you to create Zogjan Bera? Oh, well, that's easy, all three of them. Um, certainly I was, I was probably crazy enough. Um, blinkered by my eyes and what was the third one? Uh, the third one was propelled by some force you couldn't explain oh well yeah I mean we're all propelled by forces we, couldn't, we can't explain certainly I was uh, uh, I seemed to be I seemed to be able to do much more than I would have thought I was able to do the way things worked out that's a force you can't explain isn't it? like a higher force or something isn't it? well I don't know it was a lower force sometimes believe me <laughs> <laughs> how did you come about getting the name Zogjan Bera? 
Well, the name was actually given by Sogil Rinpoche, the Lama who I invited to come here and be spiritual director of the place, and who is to this day uh, the spiritual director place and running the whole spiritual side and other and the rest of Zogchen Bera. And uh, I've been asking him for, uh, I think maybe it was probably after he'd been here about three years, so his first four or five visits I'd asked him for a name, to give us a name, uh, to give us a Tibetan name. And uh, he he hadn't managed to come up with one. And so that one time he was here and um, I thought, I've got to get a name this time. So he was just leaving for the airport and he was a bit late as usual um, to get go to the airport. So the car was racing up the hill out of the place and I flagged it down and I had written on a piece of paper, I'd written drawn the Bearer Peninsula and I'd written Bearer across Bearer and I'd said on the top, Rinpoche, we need a name. How about Longchen Bearer? And uh, and I flagged the car down and posted. He wound the window down a couple of inches, and I posted this piece of paper through the window, and it fell onto his lap. And the car raced away, and uh, and then some people were following him in another car, and they went with him to the airport, and then they came back and they brought back the piece of paper, and uh, on the piece of paper he'd put a line through the word Longchen and written Zogchen. And so that's how we became Zogchen Bearer. What does the word Zogchen mean? It means the great perfection. It's, uh, it's regarded in the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism as the highest teachings of the Buddha. And uh, it's, it's uh, a whole system of teaching known as the great perfection. What do you think stops us from actually achieving that, Peter? Oh, what stops us is our habitual tendencies, our habits and our emotions and uh, all the confusion of our ordinary minds. The, the the core belief is that uh, we are actually all um, perfect in our nature, and we've sort of wandered off the path a bit. And this wandering off the path is our path actually back to that state of uh, which is actually enlightenment. In Buddhist, for Buddhists, it's called Buddha nature. For non-Buddhists, it would be just the pure, our pure, perfect nature, which is what we all all actually are inside. And uh, we've just strayed away from it and got confused. So what stops it stops us is that confusion, the uh, basically our emotions, and uh, our habits, and all the distractions of this worldly life that we lead. And the whole point of a spiritual life is to get back to our true nature, which is that state of perfection. So that's uh, that's the that's the that's the joyful and encouraging and celebratory message of Buddhism, basically that we're all actually already enlightened, but we've just got to get back there. A bit like we're actually just remembering who we really are. Yeah, remembering remembering who we are. I, I guess so, yeah. We've certainly forgotten it in a big way at the moment. What is it like to watch other people take over and redirect your lifetime work, Peter? Not easy. Uh, now it's fine. I'm really happy, but it was a long process. Now I, I, there's, some, there's the most wonderful people here. And, they, and they're working so hard for almost nothing to make the place work, and I'm totally grateful to them. But in the early days when we started, um, without me, people told me that I should be running the place, but I'd backed off and didn't want, I was never an organizer. So uh, other, there was a sort of power vacuum, so people came in, and everybody had their own ideas f- for how the place should develop. And it was an complete nightmare watching other people take over your dream. I don't recommend it to anybody. To watch other people take over their dream and, and, and 
and uh, stamp their their ideas onto what your what you had thought of, uh, what your vision for the place was. And it was uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. It was a, it was the point was there's no regrets because it was a process I had to go through, and I learned so much from that process. And what did you learn? I learned that um, because I was also guilty of fighting my corner in those days. And I think I learned that if you give up and relax and allow things to happen, and you have a strong vision, everything's fine, it'll all work out, it'll be cool. You said that if we wish to see, we must gaze without looking. What do you mean by this? This is referring to one of the higher teachings of Buddhism, but it's, it's basically, one could say, it's, uh, it's to gaze without looking. If you're looking, you tend to be looking at the detail. And when you're looking at the detail, you're noticing things and you're thinking of things and you're, you're stuck in... You're, you, yeah, you get stuck in the detail, you get caught in the detail. Gazing is more just not looking at anything in particular. And so it's a way of clearing the mind and allowing your innate awareness to arise when the, when the thought process fades. What do you think of the new temple being built here, Peter? Oh, I'm thrilled that there's a new temple being built here. I did ask that it should be built um, or nearly 30 years ago and um, because all the money had to go into other things it didn't get built and it didn't get built and then a few years back I asked Sogar Rinpoche again to, that we should have a temple and he got behind it but there wasn't any money around at the time and it, all, it was all just a process we had to go through and now the fact uh, uh, he's really encouraging it and other lamas are really encouraging that it should be, should be built and uh, so I'm thrilled that it's going ahead And when are they expecting it for it to be built? Well it should be starting at any time now which is um, the beginning of 2016 um, we don't know how long it'll take because as always here at Zogchen Bera we haven't got the money at the moment we have some of the money but the money's always come, so if it's right and it's meant to be built, the money will come. We'll see. It's going to take rather a lot of money, this one. There might be some rich people out there with lots of money and they might give it to you. Well, maybe, but more likely there'll be lots of poor people who give a little, which is, the, which is, which is even more scary uh, and absolutely wonderful and heartbreaking that people give, give so generously when they have so little. And that's how this spiritual care um, center was built. There was certainly one, one or two really, uh, really rich benefactors who helped tremendously, but an awful lot of poorer people put anything they could into it. And it's so uh, that is so wonderful, and one is so grateful that people uh, are so generous as to do that. You had a dream of setting up a community of wide awake people, Peter. Do you think you achieved that? I think we're well on the way. I think that I think. See, I think. Depends what you call wide awake. I think that most of the people here are probably a lot more awake than I am, but um, but wide awake ultimately is Buddha. You know, it means that's it means the awakened one. So uh, we're all trying to be wide awake very hard, and uh, and some of us are succeeding better than others. I'm not doing a very good job, but there are some people here. Some of the people who teach here and so on are are are, are getting there. Your wife Harriet Peter was an amazing woman in helping you to create this dream. What was she like? Well, you've said it really. She was an amazing woman who helped me create this dream. I mean, she was uh, very gentle, but could be fiery, um, very generous, incredibly generous, kind person. I used to sometimes when we were when she, she used to drive the car, of course, 
we had a car here once so we once we managed to get the road in and uh she used to drive from Castletown Bairns and I'd be coming out with her and she'd see a hitchhiker by the side of the road and pick them up and some, she'd never leave them at the cross of ground. She'd always take them to wherever they wanted to go even if it was five miles further down the road. So she was a really generous uh, and uh, compassionate and kind person and um, she, without her, this place wouldn't exist. So anybody who uses the place should be more grateful to Harriet than they are to me. It is said that difficulty at the beginning is an auspicious omen. Do you think this was the case with creating Zajan Bera? If it was the case, Zajan Bera must be incredibly auspicious now because it sure was difficult. What is Buddhism, Peter? First of all, I'd better say that the, the subject of Buddhism is incredibly vast. There's, uh, there's, there's hundreds of, many hundreds of volumes of teachings and commentaries and uh, explanations of the Buddhist word. So uh, I can only give uh, a very um, bare minimum sort of explanation of what I see Buddhism is. And basically, well, you probably know about Buddha. He was a he was a prince who lived in um, in the northern India and Nepal 2,500 years ago, and he gave up his kingdom to lead a spiritual life. Um, and uh, so. He followed the spiritual path and became enlightened and spent the next 50 years of his life teaching by the roadside and in the fields and anywhere that he was uh, invited to teach. I think the best way probably to, to put the, sum up the teachings in a nutshell is a saying, is a well-known saying of his actually, which is uh, many different translations of it, but, the, but more or less to say, uh, do no harm whatsoever do good to perfection and tame this mind of ours again and again and again and um, do no harm is like the, the, the Buddhist um, the Buddhist way of non-violence uh, and non-harming um, and uh, it's based on the re that we, based on respect that we have um, for all beings for all life uh, so Recognize we recon recognize the equal right to existence for everybody. For example, for that, that a frog or a housefly has as much right to existence as we do. So, so above all, you don't kill uh, any creatures. And so, Buddhists basically should be vegetarian or or are inclined to be vegetarian. Many aren't. The Tibetans found it difficult to be vegetarian. Most of them because of the climate there, they couldn't grow vegetables. And uh, people in the West find it quite difficult, but that's okay. The, the point of Buddhism is that there's no, there's no absolutes. You 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 uh, you do your best, and that's fine. So that's um, do no harm whatsoever. To to do good to perfection is is that you. It's basically about compassion and loving kindness and doing what you can to help other people, obviously, and then to tame the mind again and again and again is uh, is. Um, really about meditation and the various Buddhist practices and so another that's the sort of outer way of, of, of um, describing giving, an, giving a hint at, at what Buddhism is and uh, an inner way maybe uh, to talk about Buddha nature which actually we mentioned just now um, which is again that uh, we all have uh, our, our nature on the innermost level of our consciousness our, later, our nature is already perfect it's enlightened and we just have to get back to that 
and um, in uh, they, they, there are many different well, well the, an, an analogy of that start that bit again um, an analogy for that is often often that's given is they talk about the sky-like nature of our mind and all the habits and habits and tendencies and emotions are cleared away our mind is like the clear blue sky so um, of course different we're all we are all on different levels some people have a clear blue sky there are some quite quite advanced beings whose sky is almost completely clear with a few puffy little clouds on the horizon uh, for most of us our skies are quite full of clouds sunshine and re sunshine and showers <laughs> and for someone like me you live in a complete fog and you can't see your hand in front of your face um, but it doesn't matter because once you've once you've had the idea of um, of once you've had the realization of that uh, of that you're on the path and of course however dense the fog is they can all how dark the clouds are there can be a thunderstorm and the sky can clear immediately so who knows um, one thing I would like to say about Buddhism that's, that's quite important is that in these times uh, in these current times of religious bigotry of um, of extremism and fundamentalism that seems to be plaguing the world particularly at the moment um, in Buddhism there's no dogma there's, there's, Buddhism is a very tolerant religion so we never uh, we never proselytize or try to get other people to join the religion or convert people uh, of course we can answer questions like this we can write books, we can sing songs but we don't go out shouting uh, about Buddhism and trying to convert people that's, cons that's a really important part of it and in Buddhism there's no dogma there's no commandments there's no uh, wor word of God that if you don't obey you're going to go to hell um, there's, there's more it's, it's just it's more a matter of tolerance and not, not uh, and again non-violence for example uh, if I it wouldn't be really cool for me to go out with, oh Buddha advocated poverty and living, and living simply as shown by the fact that he gave up his kingdom and lived a simple spiritual life in the fields um, so that's not uh, of course that's, not in, in, that's different from poverty being opposed, imposed upon you it's chosen poverty with joy and generosity and he advocated that so if I, it would be wrong for me to go out for example at Christmas on Grafton Street with a bloody great placard saying uh, advocating poverty because the shopkeepers might get upset certainly it would go right against the core values of Fine Gael and Fine Foil and uh, so we rather, rather you would just uh, show an example live, live according to your beliefs and, uh, and if you live simply yourself that will do much more good than waving, waving banners around but the main point there is that to say that, uh, that Buddhism is tolerant of all religions and of all systems of belief and doesn't impose itself upon anybody. I think that's really important in these crazy times. What is the ordinary mind? The ordinary mind is our everyday mind that's, that's, that isn't clear, that's full of thoughts uh, and blockages such as created, as I spoke about earlier, by our habits and by our emotions. Uh, that's all. Ordinary mind is contrasted to pristine awareness, which is actually the nature of our mind, which is more like our innate understanding, our innate nature, 
to some extent like our intuition as well because it is said that we actually know everything because of course if we're enlightened in our nature we do know everything and and in a st- in a state of non-thought some of that everything can appear to you and you can and and then you have real understanding whereas does that make sense whereas our ordinary mind is is stumbling through um the day to day and it is there so that we can get around in this world of ours you know it's like it's it's said that ordinary mind develops through perhaps through evolution uh as a way of enabling us to cope in this world um because we need three things to to get on we need to 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 build a shelter for ourselves we need to um get food and we need to procreate to do those things we need to establish a solid world of like this room of walls and solid floor and earth outside and so on and and all these are, it is said in Buddhism that all these are created by ordinary mind uh for our survival whereas in the case of awareness the scientists have shown that everything is actually um just energy moving energy and uh, and our minds solidify everything into this into this realm that we see at the moment and do you think this ordinary mind limits us oh it's completely limiting it's limiting us to the three things that i said it, all it's good for really is is so we can shelter eat and uh, procreate <laughs> you're going to use another word there with you and um uh it's it's that's uh, that, that it is limited it's, it is intentionally or whatever don't mean intentionally but it is limited for that very reason to those those things so it's it's it, it can also of course think about spiritual matters um it can write poetry it can do it can paint amazing pictures but at the same time it's all within in the context of that ordinary mind and of course the ordinary mind comes from a very basic level of digging in the ground to creating symphonies like mozart there's a vast range of it so we mustn't knock ordinary mind too much but it is not ordinary mind can lead can point us in the right direction but it can't get us there the great long chimper said that the ordinary mind is what happens when you don't know how to relax do you think this is true yeah well what he means there is um it's a nice way of putting it so the idea that ordinary mind happens is appeals to me but it's it's almost like it's it's saying that ordinary mind is adventitious it's just something that happens um but uh, when we don't know how to relax is that the idea is that if you relax totally in body speech and mind particularly in speech in speech and mind of course which is thinking if you relax totally like that then you 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 become available to awareness which is our natural state you go into retreat yourself peter but what's the purpose of a retreat well there's lots of purposes of a retreat um but it's 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 actually to be able to practice exactly what i was just speaking about would be the main purpose of a retreat but it's interesting because uh if there was quite a lot of opposition to retreat in the in the 20th century i think things are changing now but um in the 20th century people rather thought you were copying out by going on to retreat but um but uh in this building that we're sitting now for example there were uh the spiritual care center at Zogchenbera they've recently had people from uh a, a groups of people who are people who work on the in on the front line in Africa in war zones and uh, in in epidemics and so on uh I can't think what they're called uh anyway you know what I mean 
and uh, we had a group of those people here uh, who are out doing the second of the of the Buddha's things about really uh, doing good to perfection, really helping people, the frontline heroes, they're amazing people. And they used to somewhat criticize people who sat on their bottoms on cushions in the shrine room or in their in retreat. Uh, in the 20th century, that was a, there was a sort of conflict of interests there. Uh, it never came to fisticuffs, but, uh, <laughs> but, but there was a sort of room for, room for some uh, controversy there. And, uh, uh, and then it's, it's, it now has changed somewhat. This group of doctors from Médecins Sans Frontières uh, came here to the spiritual care building and actually took, a, took courses in loving-kindness, um, compassion and meditation. And so the barriers have broken down now because the people who are out on the front line working to help beings have themselves started sitting on cushions because they realize how it will help. So I think I see this as a, cha a change in the 21st century, very hopeful that, uh, that people are realizing that, yes, there is actually a purpose to sitting and practicing. Of course, while the people who, uh, the, the doctors used to say, you're wasting your time sitting on your cushion, the people who were sitting on their cushions were saying, not that you're wasting your time helping, but that the only real way to help in the long term, because you can never get rid of all the suffering, the only real way to help is to get yourself together, and then you can get other people together. But that situation seems to have resolved somewhat now. You say that true change has to well up from within, Peter. Can you explain this? Yeah, well, I think that's really, again, the same as I've, I've just said, actually, that, uh, that change, true change only happens when you slow down and the, the conventional mind, the ordinary mind, the survival mind, as I call it, comes to rest, and then change can evolve from within. Change, change from the outside. Change happens on the outside all the time, imposed upon us changes that we don't like like death and things but uh, also good change can happen on the outside but the real the real change again is like like the reason I was giving for sitting on your cushion the real change the real change comes from can only come from within I know you spoke about this innate wisdom Peter but at times it can be blocked by our habit of thinking how come this happens well again our thoughts get in the way of our innate state which is pure pristine awareness um, if as, the, as is the case the belief is that we are all basically enlightened that we're all Buddhas that we're all awake wide awake deep on the deepest level of consciousness then of course thoughts get in the way they're confusing they, they actually prevent this innate awareness from arising do you believe in life after death Peter? Yes, I think um, life after death has be become an extremely contentious issue. <laughs> in in the West particularly, in the East it's, not, it's no problem at all, but in the West it's become an issue probably because of our involvement with science, because throughout history, uh, through all the great civilizations, the Sumerian civilization, the Egyptian, the Greek and so on, uh, for millennia man has always believed in life after death. And... Uh, it's only in the last 500 years since starting with, uh, perhaps starting with Copernicus, Galileo and Newton and the scientists, the, the classical scientists, they were able to disprove certain uh, religious tenets such as they were able to disprove the fact that the sun actually went around the earth. And, uh, and once they proved one thing, it seemed that the, the whole of the religious, the whole of religious doctrine seemed to be, seemed to be questioned. And more than that, 
as they as they re- relied more and more on the burden of proof they wanted to uh, everything had to be provable and you can't prove life after death or not so far we can't science was cha- challenging a lot of the r- religious precepts and demanding proofs and uh, classical physics said that everything had a beginning and end uh, so they couldn't envisage the idea of life after death and that was the traditional classical form of physics and then uh, quantum physics came along and changed everything and new sorts of physics came along uh, in the 21st century in fact uh, as recently as 2003 they discovered that um, 96% of the universe is missing or at least of course it isn't missing it's that we can't perceive it, it's invisible to us so to us it seems to be missing so that means that we are perceiving 4% of the of what is actually there 4% of everything in the universe, 4% of this room 4% of my mind, 4% of our bodies uh, so that's a tiny, tiny that, that's changing our view of everything completely and the other, the other thing is that um, now the now the theoretical physicists are coming up with all these new ideas. This is not crazy Californians, but it is um, it is physicists working in laboratories and universities all over the world are uh, investigating theories like, for example, uh, string theory and M theory and the multiverse theory. And the, that last the idea of the multiverse is that there are multiple universes. Now this is a regular theory of modern physics which is being studied by mathematicians and countless students all over the world and it, it's, it posits the idea that there are multiple universes and we each of us live in these different universes simultaneously at this moment we are actually alive in all these different universes and acting out uh, all the different possibilities of any action that we take in a different universe so in, a, in this universe where Hitler won the war they, they quote this in this universe where Hitler lost the war in another universe Hitler would have won the war or the planes would have not hit the twin towers um, so this is such a far out theory that is be, which is being seriously investigated by um, by the regular scientists by regular physicists uh, and so compared with a theory like that does life after death seem even strange anymore it seems quite plausible doesn't it so I'm sure as the 21st century goes on life after death will cease to be this big deal we'll just uh, we'll, we'll investigate further but nobody will even consider it an outlandish theory anymore what's the main message from the book Tibetan book of living and dying the main message I, I think it's all the things that we've been talking about today actually it's, I suppose the main message would be the same thing to, to practice loving kindness um, to do no harm whatsoever and to practice and study study and practice meditation that's just my version you should uh, anybody who wants anyone should read the book I don't like to speak for another author I can tell you the purpose of my book if you like <laughs> what was the purpose of your book? the purpose of my book was to encourage people to uh, I suppose partly to encourage the people to come and t- partake of the delights of this charity on the cli- crazy cliffs in West Cork here called Sogjambera but also it was very much to uh, get people to just consider all these things it, because we're living in a total in the age of materialism and that's changing I'm sure but uh, we need to understand that materialism is not the answer 
and that the best way to, to the way towards happiness is to simplify your life as the Buddha taught and uh, preferably to give away as many of your possessions as you can and and to live simply and not think that we can make ourselves happy by owning an Audi. What do Buddhists mean when they say it's all a dream? Well, it's all really, it's, it's all about perception. You know, we perceive so little of what's really going on. We perceive just the faintest sliver of reality. Um, and there's an, example given in, there's an example often given in Buddhism of three blind men being shown an elephant. They take a blind man and, and he feels an elephant's legs and he thinks that the elephant, is, so he thinks the elephant's a tree. Then another one feels the trunk of an elephant and he thinks the elephant's a snake. And the third one feels the tusk of an elephant and he thinks the elephant's a spear. Uh, this is just a story to illustrate that, uh, that if we only have a small part of our perception, uh, if we only perceive a small part of reality, we have no idea what the whole of reality is like. And in th that's a way of saying that with our limited perception, of course, it's all like a dream. But uh, actually an another ex example of this is uh, there was a Buddhist saint, a woman called Yeshe Sogyal, and her teacher Padmasambhava uh, was telling her about the vastness of, of reality and how little we see and how tiny our perception is. And uh, she asked him, she asked him to show her the whole of reality as it re reality as it is and he laughed and said if I did that you'd die or go insane so he and she persisted in asking him so he said okay he, he said he would show her the equivalent of one grain of pollen on one of the many flowers of a, a large flower called the Udambara flower and uh, so he showed her he showed her this tiny tiny bit of the whole of reality and she fainted for a week that's a story of, of sort of explaining uh, how our perception is so limited um, in fact interestingly in that was Buddha 2,500 years ago and then 2,500 years later in 2003 the scientists found out, I think I mentioned this earlier the scientists discovered that we only perceive 4% of the universe and that 96% uh, of everything is is uh, beyond the range of our senses um, so that's a similar way now of saying that we only have a very small perception of everything and then there's another way of looking at what we do perceive uh, that's what we that's what we don't perceive and what we do perceive um, when quantum physics came along in the early part of the last century uh, there's a thing called the double slit experiment which uh, which changed everything which shows that particles can go backwards in time, particles can be in two places at once, and particles are only there when you observe them. In fact, everything is a wave, and when you are looking at it, uh, it becomes solid, it becomes a particle. This, was, this, was, this has been around for a long time, and it's the basis of quantum physics. And quantum physics is not uh, some crazy idea again, but it is used in every in everything today for example without quantum physics there'd be no television there'd be no telephone there'd be no radio there'd be no personal computers there'd be no satellites it's used in everything electronic uh, but the scientists haven't got a clue what it's all about because uh, they don't they don't understand how it's possible for things to go backwards in time but the most important part of that is that uh, for Buddhists is that it says that things are only there when you're observing them and 
So this is another way of, of saying that it's all a dream. What we see is things become particles on the act of looking. Uh, until there's an observer, there is nothing there. This was according to Buddhism. And it seems to be verified now by experiments that have been done all over the world by serious scientists uh, who have proven this over and over again. So Buddha said, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. At first that seems like a paradox, uh, but actually it's incredibly clear what he's saying. He's saying things, things are not what they seem, well we've, we've tried to establish that in what I'm saying, things aren't what they seem, in other words it's all a dream. Um, but he's saying, nor are they otherwise. So what he's saying there is, things aren't really like we see them, but we make them like that with our perception. So we solidify things, as in quantum physics. Waves become particles. Waves of moving energy in space become solid particles. So we get this room, um, and so on. So things aren't what they seem. They're not. It's a dream. Things aren't really like this. We establish that. But of course, we've made it so solid that when you hit something... It actually, you, you actually hit it. So, for example, in my book, Dazzle by Daylight, I talk about, um, I, I was telling an anecdote about how someone in London in the 60s punched me in the face. And I use that anecdote to, to, uh, as an, an, an analogy to explain this idea that's, that's about the solidity of things. So I say... Uh, so solid have we made our reality that every time we get punched in the face it actually hurts. Um, so that's a, a way of saying that things aren't what they seem nor are they otherwise. I can't help adding on, on to this. There's a, there's a, you, have you heard of um, someone called Bishop Berkeley? Bishop Berkeley in Ireland, Berkeley in England. No, I haven't, actually not. He is actually uh, another great Irish genius who is not yet uh, really achieved his full place in the lineage of Irish geniuses. Uh, he was in the 18th century, in the early part of the 18th century. I think he was Bishop of Cloyne, but he, he's, he's well known. He's pro probably better known outside Ireland, I'm not sure. But um, he was George, George Berkeley. Um, well, don't worry, George, I think your time is coming. <laughs> because he said... He made this very point. He wrote a, um, a thesis called uh, On Immaterialism. And he said that without a perceiver, there is no perceived. In other words, without someone who's looking, without an observer, there is nothing to observe, which is the same thing as the quantum physics is saying. Famously, he used a chestnut tree. He talked about a chestnut tree and said, uh, when, the chestnut, when you're not looking at the chestnut tree, is, is the chestnut tree was there does it exist if, when, you, when there's no observer and um, he, was, he was putting over the idea that without as I say without a perceiver there's no perception there's nothing to be perceived there's a limerick a rather amusing little limerick uh, <laughs> on this subject and it was uh, scrawled on the wall in the quadrangle in Oxford or was it Cambridge uh, one of the universities where uh, there was a chestnut tree a famous chestnut tree and on this wall was written, uh, there was a young man who said God must find it exceedingly odd that this chestnut tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. And underneath it was scrawled in a different hand, young man, your astonishment's odd, for I'm always about in the quad. That's why this tree continues to be. 
Signed by, yours faithfully, God. <laughs> Fantastic, love us. <laughs> that's all really on, on, so it's all a dream, you know. That's, that, there's a, a lot of evidence that it's all a dream. It's not just it was a, a Buddhist, it was a Buddhist precept many, many, you know, 2,500 years ago and it's been, um, it's been proven by the scientists today. We're living in an illusion. It's a complete dream. We just see such a small part of what's going on. And I think that's just, that's just really exciting because it means we've got so much to learn. All the scientists are so are mad to find out what the other 96% of the universe is. And that means not just the universe out there, it means, it means this room, our brains, our body, 96% of everything is imperceptible to us. Wow, that's incredible. Just as a matter of interest, I heard the other day that when we look out into space with our telescopes to the furthest reaches of our galaxy than all the other 100 billion galaxies that there are beyond our galaxy. And we look back in time, 13.7 billion years, we can see almost back to the beginning of the universe, to the Big Bang. Now, what they call the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's going out as far as we can see, sort of upwards and outwards, things getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Then on the other level, looking down into, into the... Uh, into the fabric of this table, down and down and down until we get the smallest, until we get to atoms, then we go through atoms to subatomic particles, and then we go into the, into the smaller and smaller subatomic particles. As far as we can go that way, uh, the sm between the smallest, the smallest place we can get to and the largest place we can see, the furthest out we can see, they said they reckon that human beings are exactly in the middle between those two. I'm not quite sure of the implications of that, but it sounds really, really interesting to me. Quite a coincidence. You spoke about the observer there as well, Peter. Can you tell me what is the observer? Well, the observer is, well, obviously us, but the observer in, the observer in this case is basically, of course, our ordinary mind, because it's our ordinary mind that is seeing all this limited, seeing this limited perception, is seeing this room and making it solid as it is, so we can get around in it. What is enlightenment? Enlightenment is our natural state. It's, this, it's the, is our innate awareness, which is the deepest level of our consciousness. That is who we are, basically. And do you think it's possible? To get to enlightenment. Yeah, sure, but it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. Um, it's, it's the ultimate goal. I can't tell you whether there's any enlightened beings in existence at the moment or not, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's... Well, you can imagine enlightenment means that you're omniscient, that you know everything... You know the detail about everything that there is and you know the, the general way that everything is. Um, so, of course, I, don't, I haven't met many people who can, who, who can claim to be omniscient. Peter, how do we access the wisdom that's shining inside but can be obscured from the process of thinking? Well, the answer to that is by not thinking. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's not, which sounds easy, doesn't it? But it's not just not thinking because not thinking would be a dull unconscious state. You can knock someone out and say, ah, oh, they're not thinking, they're enlightened. So it's a matter of being, that's why we talk about being, that's why we talk about ordinary mind is what happens when you don't know how to relax. It's like relaxing, you need to relax and the, the secret is to relax and remain totally alert and aware. So it's not about a dull state of unconsciousness or a dull state of non-thought. It's, it's so that your mind isn't thinking but you're totally alert, awake, trembling with energy. Tell me, Peter, about your own practice. What do you do? Well, my, my own practice is a very long way from that, I can tell you. Uh, I just practice meditation. Um, 
and study to some extent um, the teachings of, of great masters and, and past uh, saints, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, but also, as you would have heard, I'm very interested in modern physics and uh, everything that's going on. Everything that's going on at the moment—it's it's very exciting, and a lot of it is confirming what the what the Buddhist thought. There's no. There used to seem to be a great dichotomy between uh, science and religion, but now, in terms of Buddhism, at least, a lot of what they're finding out seems to confirm what we what the way that we were taught. Is there any particular master that you got a lot of inspiration from, Peter? Oh, many masters, yeah. I got, uh, first of all, I started with Trungpa in Scotland. Uh, and then I went to Brazil to see another master called Chagdur Tulku, and, uh, who was amazing, and who I did a five months, five and a half months retreat with in a little small uh, concrete box in the Brazilian jungle. And, uh, and of course, Sogar Rinpoche, who has taught us so much here at Sogjambera. What are your thoughts on happiness then, Peter? I really think the way to happiness is through wanting less, actually. Through, through not being driven by our desires, by wanting less. Because the more clutter you have around you, the more confused you get. There's more worries there are. Um, the, uh, the real way to ha- happiness is through simplicity. That's my fundamental belief. And of course, following a spiritual path. Uh, and, and opening... Opening your mind is is absolutely crucial and opening your mind means opening your heart to others so that you realise that we're all in this bloody place together and you see people suffering and how can that not open your heart? And so you begin to love everybody and when you love everybody, uh, of course, you're you're to some extent not tormented but you're really moved by their suffering but it opens your heart so that you actually have this great feeling of love for all beings and that makes you, I think that makes you happy. Happy is a funny word, isn't it? Because people can say, how can you be happy when other people are suffering so much? But the happiness comes from a, from a sort of calmness and a, 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 a realisation that this life is just a flash in the pan and the suffering is really tough and, we're, and everybody's having it so tough. Um, but everybody's doing their best and that's really heartwarming and you get happiness from that. What do you think stops us from experiencing that compassion or that openness within ourselves? The rat race, in a nutshell. We're so conditioned to try, to try and achieve, particularly now in the West, more and more. Uh, and of course, uh, it's materialism has 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 driven us to want a bigger house and a better car and holidays everywhere and more and more stuff and. Uh, that kind of makes us selfish because we're in competition with, uh, instead of loving our neighbours, we're in competition so much all the time with them. Right from school, where we're competing on the sports field and in the classroom, and it just it just runs on. And we've got to drop that competition and, and allow ourselves, realise that the way to happiness has got nothing to do with the size of your car or your house or, your, or the number of your possessions. Quite the opposite, in fact. Do you think when we are beyond the judgmental mind that we can get a glimpse of this peace and happiness, Peter? Yes, of course we can. Um, it's a matter of it, that's uh, that's inevitable once you get beyond the judgmental mind. Um, it's getting beyond the judgmental mind that takes the work. Takes you know that takes some work, 
and that's why you go on a spiritual path and practice practice meditation and uh, try to open your mind so that you can realize your own innate awareness they say that all that happens is the result of comparisons do you think this is true well that's the same thing isn't it about about competition where um where if we compare ourselves all the time i think what you probably mean there isn't it is if you compare all your ti- yourself all the time to other people, you see people who appear to have everything, um, film stars and top sports stars and so on, but if you look at their lives, are they happy? They put on a good pose sometimes, but uh, they're, you might say, are they content? And they're certainly not content. Some of them will be claimed to be happy, and some are happy some of the time, but most of them, look at their, look at their lives, and most of them seem to be tormented. Even the comparisons we have about ourselves as well, and comparing our, our lives where it is now and where it was. Yeah, well, of course, and uh, we should we need to deal with the past. That's uh, the past is really useful to us as as a training, but we don't want to get into this uh, this guilt trip that is so prevalent uh, in in. Uh, uh, it's not so strong these days, but it used to be so strong in Ireland that um, yeah, it's, most Irish people talk about a Catholic guilt trip. So true, because I, I heard a while ago, guilt is a completely useless emotion. Yeah, I think it is. It's um, Guilt is a useless emotion. Uh, pondering things that you've done wrong in the past without guilt is extremely useful. But there's no point in guilt, because what you have to do is if you've done something wrong in the past, you have to make recompense for it in some way, preferably. You have to regret it. Um, uh, and you have to make up your mind you have to resolve there's five different which I forget now but but one is regret it another is a resolve never to do it again another is in some way to make recompense for it but none of that's got to do with guilt you just roll up your sleeves and get on with it and you can see that, that those things that you did wrong though they might have hurt people because that's the real wrong though they might have hurt people um, it was it sounds tough to say but actually it was a lesson for you and if you ignore that lesson then maybe then you should feel guilty do you think that difficulties are born from our own confusion? Well, don't you? Of course. <laughs> our own confusion is the difficulty, actually. That's, that's, our confusion is the difficulty. Uh, it's the difficulty we have to get over because uh, when, we're, when, we, when we cease to be confused, we're in our natural state, which is perfect, and there's no difficulty. But you say the way to happiness is to want almost nothing. What do you mean by this? I don't mean abject poverty, particularly not poverty that's imposed upon you from the outside, it's chosen poverty. And I think maybe poverty isn't such a good word because it implies misery, doesn't it? Um, that's why earlier I spoke about poverty with joy and generosity. It's, if it's a chosen poverty, it's actually a very joyous state. Um, maybe rather than poverty, I would use the word simplicity, to live simply uh, without, because the more possessions we have, the more they make demands on us. We're protecting them, or we're polishing them, or we're having to send them to be serviced. <laughs> and, uh, and it just takes up so much time. And the simpler we, simpler we are, the more simply we can live. Um, I think the happier we are, and I think that was the essential first teaching of the Buddha when he left his palace, gave up the riches, the sumptuous riches of his kingdom, and uh, chose to live as a beggar. That was his central teaching. It's almost one of the most important tenets of Buddhism that's not always talked about by New Age Buddhists now who 
want to uh, appear to practice Buddhism and yet surround themselves with riches. It's um, it's quite key actually to say that Buddhism does espouse sim- simplic- a simple way of life. Do you think this is possible now in the 21st century, Peter? Well, absolutely. It may not be possible in the way that Buddha taught it in the in a in the intense spirituality of those times when uh, Buddhists went around with a begging bowl and knocked from door to door and um, and and had no possessions at all except just one begging bowl. Uh, that's a bit too extreme for these days. Uh, anyway, we're all too health conscious. God knows what you might get put in your bowl. <laughs> uh, certainly too much sweet stuff, I'd say. So you need to establish a sort of middle way that Buddha, Buddha taught, which is uh, perhaps not absolute poverty, but uh, getting rid of, that's why I said getting rid of most of your possessions. In fact, not even most of your possessions, getting rid of the unnecessary possessions, only keeping what you really need. But you do need to be able to feed yourself, obviously. Uh, so, I'm, so I don't think anyone's advocating these days that one should become a beggar. Do you believe in the power of acceptance? Yes. Uh, acceptance is, being able to accept everything is really crucial. It's, it's, um, Acceptance is what I was talking about earlier, like giving up, and it's only when you give up everything that uh, you really open, open. You give up all your desires uh, and all all the craving, and you open. Then you can open to what is. But acceptance really is quite difficult. It's like total acceptance is what we're after here. Partial acceptance is choosing, choosing, accepting the bits you like and rejecting the things you don't like. like. And that's dangerous, that sort of acceptance, because it can lead to slavery. But total acceptance, total acceptance is the acceptance of everything, even of slavery. Because if you, if you have a slave master who's bullying you, if you are able to accept completely and everything, com- everything completely, then even, his, even the humiliation of being a slave is no longer humiliation. Or the bullying is no longer bullying because you use you use it as your path, and and that in disempowers the slave master or the bully. Is there a fine line between acceptance and being being passive in, in your life? Well, being passive is okay, if if it's if it's totally passive, and you see the idea is you see everything that happens to you in your life as a teaching and as part of your path, because that's what life is. It is path. There's no difference. All the good bits and the bad bits. And if you accept everything and see everything as a teaching, um, then you don't fight. You don't fight against what happens to you, and it makes much easier. It makes it much easier to put up with the bad bits. If you really accept everything as your path, what have you got to lose? What are your thoughts around blaming people, Peter? In Buddhism, the belief is total personal responsibility. Actually, for me anyway, let's say, I believe that I am to blame for everything that happens to me. This world this world is my projection. It's my fault and I'm to blame for everything that's going on and I have to take responsibility for that as a teaching. It's not it's not taking guilt for it, it's taking the blame for it or taking the responsibility for it, realizing if I was perfect myself, if I'd achieved the state of enlightenment, the world would be enlightened. That's quite a complicated issue. But it's uh it's when when you so when you stop blaming people and take responsibility for your taking responsibility yourself for everything that happens, then it's amazingly freeing, because we spend all our time blaming people, pointing the fingers at others, uh, as a way of getting out of the situation ourselves, and it's it's 
it's if you think about it, it's amazingly liberating to um, to give up blaming people and 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 just saying, okay, this is this is my situation, and I'll get on with it as best I can. It's not. It may not always be great. It may be terrible sometimes, but it's me for me to deal with, not to point the finger at others. Peter, do you think the American dream has distorted our thinking? <laughs> now, don't get me on to America. Um, yeah, I think the American dream, it's the, it's the, it's the same thing again, harping, harping, harping back to the materialist age. America has completely distorted our thinking. It's uh, our fault because we've taken it on board, this American dream, but the American dream is that, is that we can all make it. But uh, it's a limited dream because they're not talking about living your life happily in poverty, are they? The old man you met in Greece said, Peter, that the less you need, the happier you will be. Live simple, live away from the crowd and its aspirations. This is the pathway to wisdom and eventual freedom. It is desire and its object that chain our souls to the earth. Do you think this is true? Well, of course, that's what I wrote about when I was um, in Greece and met somebody who I saw as a spirit of Diogenes. Uh, and I met him on my own one day at dusk by the Pyrene fountain and he came across and told me the story of Alexander the Great and, Di and Diogenes this old man came shuffling out of the darkness with, with a stick and sat down beside me and he told me this well known story do you know the story of Diogenes and Alexander the Great no I don't Alexander the Great Diogenes lived in Corinth and um, used to sit by the Pyrene fountain uh, where all the rich people used to pass by and he actually lived in a barrel at one point and he really believed in living totally simply without any possessions at all and the, wise, and, and the rich people used to come for him for his wisdom and Alexander the Great had heard, heard of him and came to see Diogenes and uh, asked Diogenes various questions and Diogenes answered him uh, to the satisfaction of Alexander the Great and Alexander said well thank you so much Diogenes um, I am the richest and most powerful man in the world and you're the wisest man in the world um, to thank you for your great wisdom I would like to offer you anything you want just name whatever you want and it's yours and Diogenes said yeah I want you to get out of my son you're standing in my son will you please get out of my son and, which was a symbol really of saying that's all he wanted in the world it's a story again it's an allegory saying that, saying that again the same story about the, the the importance of simplicity, of living without, without too many possessions. That was Diogenes, and that's why I loved him. And why do you have such an affinity for Greece, Peter? Well, that's why, basically. But also because uh, I went to Greece first hitchhiking in the 60s when nobody used to go to Greece because you couldn't get to Greece by road because you had to go through Albania, which was completely closed off. And the only way was by ship from the, from the foot of Italy, and most people got not much further than Rome. So uh, we, went, we went through Rome and down to Italy and across on the boat. And, uh, and we found Greece, because it had been so isolated, was extremely poor. There were hardly any tarmac roads. There was almost no electricity. The roads were dirt roads. And there were hurricane lamps and candles in all the tavernas. And the, the people were so incredibly generous. As you see, again, as poor people, like in Arab countries, apparently where they're really poor, where all this trouble is at the moment, the people are the most courteous and 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 
and generous and they'll give you everything they have uh, to strangers and it was the same in Tibet in the olden days and the same I think everywhere um, four people are like that that's another another reason for it it just shows that how simplicity and poverty makes it is, it's so much easier to be generous and kind and compassionate when you have so little and so Greece was really like that and we were we were um, we were treated to such generosity in Greece people came running up from running up from their houses with armfuls of oranges to give us when we were just walking by and and uh, there's many stories I told uh, in my book about the generosity of Greece and it was it was just it was an enchanted place at that time What are your thoughts on the education system Peter? On the western education system? The general western education system I think I think they're doing good things in Finland I've heard now where you don't go to school till you're seven and they call all the teachers are all called by their first names is that the same here in Ireland? I can't remember still think it is Mr. Mrs. I think in the majority of places yeah <laughs> okay in England everybody's called uh, by their surnames anyway um, but here in Ireland at least uh, adults and children all call each other by their Christian names but at school they've still got a title I guess in Finland the teachers anyway are called by their Christian names as I say they don't go to school till they're seven they can choose the subjects they want it's a, it's a very open and liberal system I think the education system um, I think the education system is completely and utterly wrong at the moment they're cramming this, the kids heads with facts just testing their memory they're not educating them I mean do you remember anything that you learnt at school? No I don't, I think, what a waste how many years do you spend at school 10-15 years whatever it is what an incredible waste of, a, of, a, of, the, of one's most precious years of youth. It's amazing. My daughter went to Summerhill School in England, which is a famous, uh, the world's most famous, probably progressive school. And there the children uh, didn't have to go to class if they didn't want to. The children, the children made all the rules for the school. It, it was completely free like that. My daughter, and she could choose what lessons she wanted to learn. And there was no pressure ever on her to go to class. She could do just what she wanted to. And of course, under that situation, the kids went to class and they learned. And she became a doctor of anthropology. She got her PhD at King's College, Cambridge. And that was with that sort of education when she could go to class. And she didn't work all that much at school. But as I said, we learn nothing at school anyway. So how can you keep the kids on a sunny day stuck in the classroom learning stuff they don't want to know when they could be outside running around in the sunshine enjoying their youth? We're... We're going in exactly the wrong direction. We're teaching children younger and younger. We're teaching them mathematics at the age of three. We're doing preschool and so on. Preschool would be fine to, so the parents could be liberated and the children could be in preschool as long as they didn't learn anything. The way to learn for children is through play. And children aren't even allowed to play half the time here in Ireland because they're afraid that they might get hurt in the playgrounds and the parents will sue the school. Um, so, the, so the schools can't get insurance. You know the story. It's a crazy situation. It's, it's really, it really saddens me to see children being, uh, being crammed at such an early age. And you look at the children doing their leaving certificate here in Ireland. And there's such competition. We were talking earlier about competition. That's real competition. And that's no way to spend your youth. Interesting enough, I actually read the book Summerhill. I think it's a fantastic school. I think it was one of the schools in England that actually has the highest level of happiness per student than any other school in England. 
And another little thing about Summerhill School, I, they, I'm not sure they haven't changed it now, but when my daughter was there and since the beginning of the school, um, the, the boys and the girls all used to swim naked together in the swimming pool, uh, which is perfectly natural and pure if you grow up that way. Uh, it's only clothes that make it all weird. And, uh, and that school was the only school in the whole of England that had never had a teenage pregnancy. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. The emphasis there was really on the understanding that children at an early age need to play and they learn through playing. And if they want to learn, they will learn. So if you let them go to the classes they want to go to, classes they're interested in, they'll really learn. You've got to want to learn to learn. You can't force stuff on people like that because you just don't remember it. You might re- learn it, remember it long enough to pass your uh, leaving cert. But, so you've got an exam. Big deal. But it's, it's, just, it's just brainwashed you. What do you think of loneliness, Peter? Loneliness is a, is a, is a huge problem for people. Um, I can only really, I think, speak about my own case. When my wife died, um, 22 years ago now, uh, I found that, being, living on my own, I found that the lonely time, the real time for loneliness was in the evenings when it got dusk, and then you could feel you felt the loneliness. I think maybe partly because uh, everyone else was having fun and you weren't. <laughs> but also because six o'clock is when samsara starts to steam up. You know, there's stuff on television, you're going out drinking, and I was here, I couldn't drive, so I was here on my own, stuck in, in this remote place. And uh, I used to feel the loneliness a bit in the evening then. So I, my cure to it was, I decided because of the way I was living, I decided to go to bed at six o'clock at night, uh, sleep through that, that dusk period and that, and that, and that evening period, uh, and wake up at two in the morning. And I've done that for the last 22 years. And uh, I get up at two in the morning, and one, you've got to watch your ego getting up at two in the morning because you don't half feel superior. All the rest of the world sound asleep. <laughs> All the rest of the world sound asleep, and, uh, and you're up big deal but actually I'm joking there the thing, the thing is at two in the morning you get it's easy to feel it's great for, for feeling compassion for people because you think of all the all the people the you know the school teachers and your friends and the policeman and the soldier and the thief and all all people lying lying down in bed with their heads on the pillow and it's very easy to love people when you see them like that it's only when they're in your face <laughs> that is more difficult so there's lots of reasons to, that I enjoy getting up the other thing I'm an early riser anyway I'm a morning person so that was good for me but uh, I found I, I, I like to do a lot of writing and of course meditation practice and two in the morning is a wonderful time for that uh, because the world's quiet at that time and, uh, and so that's the way I that's just the personal way that I handled handled loneliness and since I started doing that I've never been lonely since not once what are your thoughts around authority and power Peter uh, well basically we have to put up with it don't we the only authority I accept basically I suppose is my own authority but that doesn't mean that I go around breaking the law uh, or causing or in fact would, would avoid it at all costs because of the trouble that it would cause both me and other people who has the right to tell us what to do? We're big boys and girls now. We've grown up. If you live according to the Buddhist precepts by, of doing no harm whatsoever, doing good per, to perfection, and above all, which is really difficult, 
putting other people as much as possible before yourselves or at least uh, equal to yourself so you care about people then you don't need laws you're not going to do anything to, wrong anyway and uh, so that's how I feel about authority What are your thoughts on the media, Peter? I don't know much about media because I don't get involved with any of it. I haven't watched television for about 20 years. I gave up the radio for many years and I did get drawn back into it a bit again, but I've given it up again. Um, I never go to see films. There comes a point actually when you're practicing when, uh, unfortunately, it ceases even to be a diversion anymore. I used to love to sit down and watch a good DVD or movie. But uh, can't get into it anymore. It all seems a bit of a waste of time now. That's, for God's sake, that's not trying to sound precious. It probably does sound disgustingly pompous and precious. But I'm just telling you my personal state that I've, I've got a bit bored with all that stuff. But the, thing, the main thing about media is it does drag you back into the world. And a lot of it is just gossip, you know. The stories aren't all the stories exactly the same. It's just that the names are changed. Uh, there's only a few stories and we just put, make them up in different combinations as a diversion, as a, di as a distraction and the whole point is not to be distracted so it's the same, it's okay if, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, when you're bored uh, have a bit of uh, diversion or distraction as long as you realise that's what you're doing it's just sweeties actually and sweets aren't good for you Peter, what do you think is the ultimate meaning of existence? the ultimate meaning of existence for me or and perhaps for Buddhism I don't like to talk too much for Buddhism because it's always my own interpretation of it but for me the ultimate meaning is to get back to our own innate nature which is actually enlightenment that's the purpose of existence and the meaning of existence is that's more tricky the meaning of existence I think the, I would put it this way uh, the purpose is to get back to our enlightened state when we will find out the meaning of existence. And you've been living in Ireland and more so Cork for many years, Peter. What do you like about Ireland? Well, what I like about, particularly about the Bear Peninsula, is the people are still really open and generous uh, and, uh, and friendly, so that's good. Um, I like the emptiness of Ireland. There's so much room here because there aren't many people and there's a, a lot of space, which is fantastic. Uh, I love the Irish weather. Um, I'm, I'm addicted to rain, so that's fine. I think there's, a, there's an interesting uh, change. Again, I've talked a few times about the good things that are happening in the 21st century. I'm sure what's going to happen now is people are going to get bored with all this bloody sunshine. As the earth dries up and there's not enough water, it's going to be unfashionable to lie around baking yourself in the sun, giving yourself skin cancer. And people are going to realize rain is going to get another hole, it's going to take a great leap forward, it's going to become precious. And it'll take a little while yet, but it, rain, when half the world is, is running out of water, Ireland is going to be in a great position with all this water we've got. And, uh, and rain is going to become, people are going to realize just how beautiful rain is. I love walking in the rain and getting wet. Um, it's, uh, it's so much better than roasting and drying up and crackling up in the sun. I love the way that our Irish people the, the, is very different in most of Europe. It's, it's a little bit similar in France, actually. In France, everybody seems to be into philosophy. 
In Ireland, they're really into art, is what I was going to say. And you can talk to anybody. I mean, you go into a pub in Ireland and uh, anywhere in the country, and people are spouting poetry. And, and uh, in England, you'd be kicked out of half the bars. If you'd, it would be so embarrassing. If you, you know, poetry is for, for wimps and wusses. <laughs> and in Ireland, you go in and, and uh, tough, tough labourers and farmers and people are talk, will tell you, we'll recite poems and very much a, a country of the arts. I just love Ireland. That's why I'm here. I spent 40 years here, more than 40 years here. And uh, unless I loved something about Ireland, I wouldn't have stayed on this blasted piece of bloody rock here in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> Would you have any words of wisdom for any of our listeners in how they could create more peace and happiness in their lives? I think just to, to try. I, you see, I can't say to people to slow down because I know people's lives are so full these days that so they haven't got a moment to slow down. But... Actually, so the only way to slow down is perhaps to give up some of the things you're doing. For families, it's different. If you've got families, that's that's you don't. You, there's no way you can slow down if you've got families these days. Particularly when I was bringing up my children here, there were very few entertainments or or um, pastimes, hobbies for the children to do. I think Harriet used to take the children to Irish dancing and karate, and that was about it. Now there's so many sports, so many different. Uh, things going on. The parents are running their children here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and and of course, when I came to Ireland, the women weren't working mostly. Now both parties are working, and it's 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 become impossible to slow down. I wouldn't. Maybe you could find some ways by giving up something to slow down. But the point is, for single people, they can certainly find more space uh, and slow down. If you're bringing up a family. Well, the wonderful thing is that you're bringing up children and, you're, and you're, the important thing is, I believe, that's the most important job in the world is to bring up, to bring up the next generation. And the, way, and the best thing you can do with the children is, by example, not just through indoctrination, but that'll do as well, teach them that, uh, about the importance of simplicity and teach them... Ah, it's difficult. Try and find some way to teach them not to, com- not to be so... or to compete, but not believe in the competing. Maybe like that. Would you have any final thing you'd like to say before we close? No, I just, I just like to say I hope what I've said has made a little bit of sense. Uh, I'm quite nervous about talking with a microphone shoved into my face because I don't normally do this and I live quietly on my own, as you know, and spend most of my time in retreat. And uh, I should probably be, at this point, infinitely cool, but actually I'm infinitely nervous. So that shows uh, how much my practice is working. But uh, anyway, I, uh, I had to take this chance to speak because one is obliged to uh, um, offer one's thoughts if one is asked to. I hope it's made some sense. Most of all, I hope it hasn't trodden on too many toes. Well, thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career and much, much more. In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Hellstone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Hellstone or log on to our website www.thehellstoneshow.com if you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Headstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free book called 
how to transform your health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy, and happy week.